Hello, and welcome back to the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Thorne. For many producers in the U.S., the spring 2022 lambing season is wrapping up, and now the focus is on managing our flocks to wean the healthiest, heaviest, and most abundant lamb crop possible. One factor that can prevent this from happening, though, is mastitis, which is a serious health concern for not only the ewe, but her offspring, who are almost always negatively affected as well. Here with me today to explain more in depth about the negative economic impact mastitis has on our flocks and to update us on the best management practices for prevention is Dr. Chad Page, a sheep and goat extension specialist from Utah State University. Dr. Page, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me here. Sure. Dr. Page, before we get into mastitis and the ins and outs of this topic, uh, could you provide us a, a bit more about your background and how you came to be at Utah State? Uh, yeah, Jake. So I I grew up um, in Chandler, Arizona, kind of dairy country, and uh, grew up on a small farm where we had some some sheep and some goats and poultry. And, you know, I, like many others, went on to college with um, some grand, you know, big goals to become a veterinarian and, you know, kind of fell in love with some other areas in animal science, including nutrition. And from there, I was able to go to grad school and started working with some really good sheep scientists um, out there. And so I originally went to Montana State University and then followed that up with the University of Wyoming for my PhD. But uh, it didn't take very long into that path uh, before I started working with sheep producers, understanding the American sheep industry that much more that I really, really kind of became passionate about the American sheep industry. And um, with that also um, the importance of all the, the, the things that they're worried about. And so I've really liked my opportunity um, through grad school and now in my current position um, at Utah State University to try to explore research that is applied um, that uh, hopefully can help our producers in in one way or another. So, great. Well, the sheep industry is is really lucky to have you, and and we appreciate you being on here to to talk a bit about mastitis. And and speaking of that, uh, what about this disease particularly kind of stimulated some of your re- research interest in this area? So. Um, some of, some of the research interests that we had early on, and I think we'll talk about, um, maybe a little bit more in depth is that, you know, we started evaluating, um, some mineral supplementation early on in my graduate career and how that affects animal performance. Uh, but one of those things being mammary health, you know, that's a common thing that we're often calling our use through. Uh, out of our flock um, based on that mammary health of whether or not uh, they have, you know, a hard bag um, of those lumps coming into weaning or, or right before breeding. And so mammary health becomes a big issue on the longevity of the ewes in our flock. And so it made a lot of common sense to kind of explore that um, the mastitis route, which is one of the major contributors of of calling animals based on that memory health so sure so to kind of just start us at a, at a foundation here what exactly is mastitis and, and broadly speaking how does it affect sheep 
Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I, th I think in the most simplistic term we define, and even the Merck Veterinary uh, Manual defines it as basically an inflammation of the mammary gland. Now, this inflammation be can be caused by a variety of things, generally by some kind of bacteria uh, pathogen. And um, that intramammary um, inflammatory response um, is generally divided up into one of two different categories. Either we discuss it as subclinical mastitis or clinical mastitis. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, and, and so I, I, not to jump in there, but just uh, briefly, what are what would be the signs of say clinical mastitis? Yeah, so clinical mastitis, the kind of the differentiation between the two is clinical mastitis was the things that we can see that that we can visually tell that there's an issue with our U, and so those clinical signs generally are, um, as far as the milk goes, abnormally colored milk. Um, maybe it's darker in color or has a foul odor that shows signs of infection. Um, maybe it's the, um, your ewe comes off feed or she starts running a fever, um, starts looking lethargic. And those are some signs that some things are going on wrong, but also the actual visual appearance of that udder. So um, depending on how bad that mastitis gets, um, sometimes it can affect the bloodstream and then cut off some blood supply to the udder. And then you get that blue bag effect where it actually discolors uh, the udder. Um, or, you know, you can have hard lumps in the udder or it becomes warm or hot to the touch. And so all these things are pretty common clinical signs. Generally, we kind of see it in one half of the other verse both at the same time. Sure. And so you also mentioned subclinical. And, and so would you mind expanding a little bit on that? Yeah. So subclinical mastitis, um, it's a little bit harder to quantify, right? As, as scientists, we, we're always wanting to quantify everything, right? And <laughs> yeah, so yes. um, it's, it becomes really challenging because subclinical, we, there's something wrong there, um, right? Maybe we lose some milk yield or some production, which We'll, we'll talk about, um, but we can't see, we can't see any visual, you know, identifiers that that's happening. And so there are a couple things that we do. One, um, we can culture bacteria from the milk and that is a pretty good indicator and probably one of the best standards of identifying whether or not mastitis is happening. Or we can look at the somatic cell count or the white blood cell count in the milk um, based on the milliliter. Um, and from some of the research and other experts that I've talked to um, that deal with mastitis is that that correlation with sheep and goats maybe isn't um, as strongly correlated with subclinical mastitis as maybe it is with cows. Um, we see that those levels of somatic cell count are much higher in our smaller ruminants, our sheep and goats, than they are cows. Um, on general, without showing any signs of clinical mastitis. Um, and then other than that, there's also, you know, some some alley side tools that we can use, um, like the California mastitis test that may help us try to identify some of those, those used, but that's also based on somatic cell count. And so 
a combination of those things um, kind of helps us identify the subclinical. Um, but then again, it's it's really difficult to try to to get a hand on. Um, but I think the more we try to explore this and research this, hopefully we can try to get some better answers for our producers and then increase productivity by identifying those animals. Sure. So uh, Dr. Page, you and I were kind of chatting beforehand and, and we were talking about mastitis being a, a problem that's, you know, something a, across the U.S. Uh, it's not really confined to a certain region and uh, and it's been a, a longstanding problem too. And, and so I guess uh, with that in mind, you know, is there a, a, a typical threshold when we say in a flock that there is a, a mastitis outbreak or is there sort of an acceptable level of, of percentage of ewes that may have mastitis in a flock? Um, because we know that it is pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. And I, this question comes up a lot is what, what is an acceptable amount? Because, you know, if we have a certain number of ewes, one or two is not acceptable, right? You know, we, yeah. you know, even if we have a hundred ewes and one or two, um, get mastitis, man, that's that's a bummer because there are costs associated with that. However, across the literature, um, two to three or even three to five percent is pretty normal uh, range for clinical mastitis. Now, that's what we can see. Subclinical mastitis, however, um, that range is a lot is a lot greater. And the prevalence of that in our flocks um, is has a lot more, uh, it just varies widely uh, depending on the flock. And so, but because of the issue of quantifying that, um, we have a hard time identifying every animal that that is having subclinical mastitis. I would say that if your animals start reaching out of that 5%, even, you know, 10, 20% reported up into some surveys, uh, that is what should make us probably look back and reevaluate what our management uh, strategies are to try to reduce right. that mastitis. So, okay. So what, with that said, what, what are the most prevalent causes uh, of mastitis? Yeah. So the most prevalent causes um, are uh, different bacteria species. So some of these bacteria species, including, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in these particular bacteria species, but, they include Streptococcus, um, Staphylococcus, um, some other, you know, negative, uh, gram-negative species. And all these are probably our most common um, causes of mastitis. Uh, however, I mean, there are some other things that attribute to mastitis. Um, but generally, it's the introduction of those bacteria species from bedding or the environment that, you know, kind of work their way up the teat canal or, and they infect and cause that initial inflammatory response. Right. Okay. So beyond just uh, a pathogen, uh, I was curious, you know, can mastitis develop from an injury as well? Yeah. Yeah. So um, any injury, right, also kind of increases that likelihood of, that bacteria being introduced to that um, to those mammary glands. And so, for example, a ewe that is raising twins or triplets versus single, um, 
is also a little bit more susceptible just in the fact that, you know, she has more lambs nursing her, you know, they, they may injure the end of that teat um, and then make her a little bit more susceptible um, to mastitis. And so that'd be one way, a minor way that an injury can also cause mastitis, right? Uh, other than, you know, an abscess or, or some other more right. grave injury. So. Okay. So kind of going back to the, the thought about susceptibility to mastitis, particularly from a pathogen. Uh, I'm curious, are there certain breeds that are maybe more susceptible than others, or is it pretty widespread and evenly distributed across breed types? I, that's a great question. And some, some of the research that I was able to do in my PhD, we saw, we saw a little bit of differences in, in breed types. Now, not necessarily with clinical mastitis, but we did see some differences in somatic cell count um, averages across two different breed types. And I don't think that there's enough literature and research out there to show that one breed is necessarily more susceptible to another within our the sheep breeds we commonly use in the US. However, there are some other aspects to our use, maybe phenotypic traits that contribute to that. So uh, milk yield is something that may you know, be correlated with uh, susceptibility to mastitis. So those ewes that maybe produce more milk um, may be more susceptible or those more prolific ewes, we talked about ewes that having, that are nursing twins or triplets may also be more susceptible. And so some of these other phenotypic traits may play into that, but I don't know if there's quite enough research out there to show that, you know, our one white face breed is, is different than another white face breed or one of our black face breeds. Okay. So, so back to the, the pathogens that you mentioned, uh, where, where do they commonly come from? What are, what are some situations where sheep, you know, pick these pathogens up essentially? Yeah, I, I would say that within, you know, the sheep industry, the dairy, the cattle dairy industry, um, probably, the number one thing that people identify is the, is the source of bedding um, is one of the big attributors to these pathogens. And some bedding sources seem to house different types of bacteria. Um, so, you know, wood chips may be slightly different than straw or, you know, maybe some inorganic source, you know, using sand in the dairy cattle industry is a pretty common thing. And so, this is a pretty common thing that introduces this bacteria. Um, one thing, you know, that also may introduce some different types is um, if there are other animals, you know, um, bringing in or contaminating that or maybe where we sourced that bedding from. Um, but also making sure that, you know, if one you does get a really bad case of mastitis to kind of bring her out of the flock. So if it is one of those pathogens that is passed back and forth, that would help us eliminate it too. So, you know, un unfortunately the answer to this is, you know, these bacteria will kind of always be in the environment. Some of them even associated with the you herself. Um, yeah. Okay. So how can mastitis uh, affect the performance of sheep? And and I'm asking this both from the perspective of the ewe and the lamb. 
Right. So I think, uh, I think a lot of us understand pretty well that we're getting paid on pounds of lamb, yep. right? And you know, whether we're selling feeder lambs or, or something else, and a big attributor to the success of the pounds of lamb we raise is total milk yield of our ewe. And so probably the biggest aspect of the negative influence of both clinical and subclinical mastitis is the fact that that milk yield drops. Um, and so that decreases our performance of our ewe, uh, how efficient she is at raising the greatest number pounds of lamb uh, for that litter that year. Um, now there's some other costs associated with that, right? Um, so some of the biggest costs being, you know, ultimately if mastitis was bad enough, a clinical case of mastitis where that you died, we would have to replace that you, we would take the cost of that you. Um, and right now replacement use are one pretty hard to come by and also pretty pricey. Um, and also the cost of the lamb. So if that you kicks her lamb off because it, it's too tender uh, for her to nurse that lamb and it, it's hurting her, she'll kick that lamb off. And so then we need to be aware if that lamb is eating or not. Um, and if it's not, then we may have to orphan that lamb. And then we start talking the cost of milk replacer, right? Yeah. right? And so um, milk replacer is pretty costly. And then it takes our time also, which is another thing to factor in. And I don't know if it's a a wise thing to start tracking the hours of the average sheep man because that that would be a hard sure. thing to do. Um, but but it's something to think about. And so I think uh, all those things kind of play into our normal production costs, yeah. right? So replacing the ewe, uh, the loss of you know maybe dead lambs or dead ewes if things are bad enough. So, so yeah, even in a so it sounds to me like even in a single case, you know, you're giving up lamb weight, uh, potential ewe replacement, uh, the labor management, healthcare, all needed. So that can add up pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, and, and another thing, Jake is, uh, and that's that's probably more on the clinical side of yeah. things, right? The subclinical side of maybe where we're not seeing these losses. Um, we may not ever know that we're having losses, that you is still raising her lambs, but maybe has grit, less milk sure. yield. Um, there's a lot of research, good research that has come out of, you know, Montana State, the, the uh, sheep experiment station showing that some of those ewes that have subclinical mastitis are raising less pounds of lamb. Now, let's say that, you know, is only 20% less, you know, per um, per litter that she's raising, you know, 20%, um, in an industry where we generally are, are making a fairly, I mean, prices have been really good, but on average, we, we like to keep yeah. as much, right. We like to keep as much profit as we can. And so, um, 20% across a number of lambs or a truck of lambs, that's, that's a pretty large amount of money that, uh, we would like to try to keep if we can identify those subclinical sure. cases. So what are the best recommendations regarding culling use that have shown signs of, of mastitis? Yeah. So um, I guess the first thing to answer Jake is why would we cull the 
you that does have mastitis, if maybe we could get her better, right? That, that you that does get a case of mastitis, um, she's more susceptible to get mastitis again, our next uh, lactation, right? So when she tries to raise again. And so identifying those ewes that did get a case of mastitis is really important. And one of the reasons that we do coal ewes. And so um, probably one of the best times to look for these cases and the easiest times is weaning is generally time we get a chance to put our hands on use, especially in our operations that are maybe a little bit more extensive. We're out on range um, and we get to put hands on our use less often. Weaning is pretty easy, but what's probably even a little bit better than weaning time is a couple weeks after weaning uh, to put uh, to bag those use and give them another score. And that allows us to catch any of those hard nodules, um, cases of some mastitis that that you had, or maybe one udder never dropped and she was <clears throat> raising a lamb or two lambs off of one udder. Um, those are the kind of ewes that we want to get rid of. And then other than that time point um, at breeding, when we're sifting through our ewes and we want to try to identify which is our best breeding stock, that's another good time to make sure that we check the mammary health of our ewes and cull those that would be suboptimal. So what if a, a producer suspects they have, you know, a, a fairly high percentage of mastitis cases, more than what would be expected? Uh, what what would be their next steps if they have that inclination that there's a, a widespread problem? I Well, I think if they had an inclination um, that something to the extent of or related to mammary health was going on, um, one thing, first thing probably is to test to see what your problem is. And whether that's having your veterinarian come out or um, to help you identify those cases, if you can't see some of those apparent clinical signs, um, you know, we talked about the bacteria culturing that most universities will do for a fee. And then we also talked about somatic cell count, which can help you try to identify some also. Um, but if it comes back that, yes, you are having a problem and it's related to mastitis, that's probably when you should step back and say, okay, what are, what management strategies can I improve in order to decrease the amount, um, in most cases related to, um, that bacteria in your environment. So are, do you have too many sheep confined in one area and you're not able to clean the bedding fast enough? And then, you know, they're kind of laying in uh, dirty bedding or, you know, do you have um, one bedding that just isn't working for you and you may need to switch to something else? Um, so there's some different things to think about. An another thing to think about, and maybe uh, we can talk about this later, but I think a good way to prevent is also to share use prior to lambing, right? That helps our environment. Um, that helps keep a cleaner environment. And at the bare minimum, if we're not, if we're not able to shear those ewes prior to lambing, which in, I don't know about you guys in Texas, but here in Utah, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find shearers. And um, if we can at least get our ewes in, crutch them out, um, maybe get away some of that wool off the inner legs and around the udder, that would try to help keep a little bit cleaner environment for 
those teats um, to be around, right? And so those are some of the management things that you may want to think about of why am I having high cases of mastitis? So in general, what I'm kind of hearing from you is, you know, best management practices are to, for prevention are, are to keep things clean as possible, whether that's, you know, the, the housing or where those users are lambing in the jug pens or, uh, you know, early on in that lamb's life. Also some shearing to, again, kind of, uh, you know, keep pathogens from sneaking their way in, in the teat. Uh, anything else you want to add to that as far as preventing mastitis incidents, as opposed to, um, you know, just dealing with the problem once it's already kind of correct, uh, wrecked havoc essentially, or, or created such a problem. Yeah. I, I think another thing that I is priority to add to that is also, um, nutritional management too. And so making sure that we're feeding our use appropriately, um, so that when that, you know, all the things that are most important to that, you, um, you know, her own maintenance for bodily functions, her immunity, uh, reproductive performance, all these things for that you are are in line and being met through proper nutrition. Because if we're not meeting some of those things, um, number one, we may not breed up yeah. well, yeah. right? And so we may, ne- we may never even get to that lactation point. Um, but if we do, um, that's generally the time that is the time where we have the greatest requirement for nutrition, right? For the number of calories, energy, protein. And so not meeting that would bring one milk yield down, but then also, you know, what might start getting backseat is her immune function. And if she's not able to handle that inflammatory response as well, you know, maybe she could, she was in subclinical mastitis, she could succumb to that and then move into a clinical mastitis stage. I think there are a lot of cases where yous are in subclinical mastitis and they're able to move into being a, a normal, healthy you um, if you're meeting all those sure. other needs. And so. Okay. Yeah. And so I want to take that a little more specific, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I know you've sure. conducted some research regarding mineral supplementation specifically and uh, and, and its impact on potentially uh, on utter health. And, and so I was just wondering if you'd be willing to, to share a little bit about some of that research and, and what you guys found uh, through that process. Sure. Yeah. And so I, I think it's kind of important to point out that that, that research kind of went a ways back and I was lucky to work with some really good sheep scientists through that project. But uh, what happened is, you know, we had done some surveys um, looking at how producers are supplementing mineral. And then we started exploring more specifically how zinc is beneficial um, to sheep production. And so we started feeding increased amounts of zinc and both organic and inorganic forms of zinc. And we were seeing increased wool growth and increased average daily gain and all these other production parameters that could be profitable to the sheep industry. And one thing that started coming about is um, zinc status of the animal and how that affects mammary health. And so a lot of my PhD, um, what I did, Jake, and a lot of the research that we're putting out right now uh, was based around looking at um, mammary health as it relates to dietary zinc concentrations. And so kind of the objective was, is feeding zinc at 
the NRC or the requirements, the NRC requirements for sheep or beyond that, um, feeding beyond that requirement, are we getting any additional boost to mammary health, maybe decreasing the amount um, incidences of clinical or subclinical mastitis um, and kind of showing that in, you know, greater average daily gain of lambs or less somatic cell count or something to that extent. And um, it was, I tell you what, uh, milking range use um, th throughout so many weeks of lactation, uh, cut several times a week, um, getting kicked in the face. I mean, that's something I'll never forget. So I'm great, great grateful for that experience. Um, and, you know, and I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I'll be continuing some research uh, based around that. Um, but kind of some of the things that we found with that is um, we really didn't see um, a ton of differences in decreased somatic cell count as far as the amount of zinc that was in their diet. Um, however, I think it's kind of important to point out that we were also comparing those increased amounts of zinc to um, the normal requirements of zinc, right? Um, but me and you, and I don't, I'm not as familiar with Texas, but throughout the Intermountain West, we are highly deficient in zinc um, in our native forages and in selenium. And so, you know, thinking about those producers that may not supplement any more than um, some salt on range, you know, it may be um, pretty, I mean, pretty normal to think that some of those animals could be zinc right. deficient. And so if we're comparing an animal that may not be at a good status mineral wise compared to those that are meeting those requirements, you know, we may see some differences and in mammary health, right? And so one of the big things being is that zinc is involved in keratinization and in the teat of the animal, you know, a keratin plug and there's kind of a keratin lining that lines that. And um, with meeting that zinc requirement, you're able to kind of keep that keratin lining or it decreases the amount of bacteria that are able to work their way up and infect the mammary glands. And so, uh, that's that was one big thing of why we looked at it, uh, along with zinc's involvement in immune function and some of those other things. And so it was a really good project. Um, we didn't see a lot as far as um, how, you know, the dietary zinc helped. But one thing we did see that was kind of interesting is um, our blackface use uh, that we utilized on that study compared to kind of a more Western whiteface use. Um, on average, they had a greater somatic cell count uh, than the white face. Um, that's not saying they showed any signs of clinical mastitis, um, but it was kind of an interesting fact. And another thing we did is because we milked them every couple days throughout the first 30 days of lactation, is we saw that that somatic cell count was highest right around day six to day nine. Um, and when I say high, the what it peaked out at for that average across all those animals was 900, roughly 900,000 um, white blood cells per mil. And so we saw a lot of use in that study that were above a million, you know, for somatic cell count. 
and showed absolutely no signs of clinical mastitis. And so when, after that point, the somatic cell count kind of dropped down um, throughout the rest of that sampling period. Um, and that could be due to a couple different things, right? Maybe the somatic cell count got high enough that it did affect milk yield, or maybe the milk yield started to increase to the point where it diluted down that somatic cell count. And so there are a couple different theories on why maybe that is, but uh, in interesting nonetheless, and, you know, kind of something as scientists, we, you know, it's the more we explore, the more questions right. we have. That is so. really interesting. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned that, uh, and we talked just as briefly about it, you know, having ewes and lambs in close quarters, in lamby jugs, uh, under a barn, or even in a small lot, you know, those are scenarios where uh, potentially mastitis uh, becomes a, a bigger issue. So I'd like to ask you, what, what are the pros and cons of lambing on range instead? And, and Again, just from a, a perspective of mastitis, you know, what what are the give and take of of getting them out of that scenario or that situation uh, where we we think of mastitis being an issue? Right. So I think uh, I think a lot of us, you know, think well. I, the the common uh, kind of thing we think about is the more animals you have in confinement, the crowd more crowded they are, the more likely diseases to spread in whatever sphere of disease we're talking about, whether it's foot rot or, sure. or something to that extent. However, you know, range, uh, range lambing in this case, since we're talking lactation, uh, there's a lot of positives to that and there are some negatives. So the positives being in contrary to our sh maybe shed lambing systems or more confinement operations, um, our user spread out more. The, the, bedding or ground that they're on is probably cleaner, right? Less, less feces and things like that. Um, you know, also, you know, one of the positives of that is we have, we don't have to pay generally as many workers, uh, to work a system like that. Uh, but with that, we also don't have as many eyes on our animals. Yeah. Right. And so it becomes increasingly more difficult to try to spot that you that has maybe kicked off her lamb. Um, or, you know, that isn't doing well or starts becoming lethargic because, um, it's just harder for one person to maybe run a whole band of ewes that are lambing all around the same time and, and things like that. So there are definitely some pros, uh, but also some cons. So we might not catch that, that you who suffered from mastitis until we, and unless we're bagging her at weaning or, you know, sometimes we get all the way till breeding and then we realize that, you know, that point we had, we had fed her, you know, throughout a good portion of the year through that maintenance right. period. Um, and then we need to call her. So. Interesting. Okay. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you briefly a, a little bit about some vaccination options. My understanding is that there, there isn't, uh, an approved vaccine for, for sheep in the U S uh, are you aware of, of any research efforts that are going on, maybe looking towards, uh, uh an endpoint where there potentially is a vaccine? Yeah. So it, as far as I'm concerned, like you, Jake, there currently isn't anything approved in the U S uh, for vaccines related to mastitis and sheep. Um, I, 
I currently am working um, and lucky enough to work with some really good veterinarians. And one of them is a veterinarian pathologist who's worked with a lot of different viruses and bacteria species. And me and her are currently collaborating and we're we're going to explore this topic a little bit more, taking some samples, uh, maybe from some different operations and, and culturing this bacteria. And, and hopefully we can start exploring it enough to try to, you know, get some treatment options for producers in the U.S. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, I, there aren't a ton of options uh, treatment wise that I'm aware of as far as vaccines sure. are concerned. Okay. Now, are there other other abnormalities or, or issues that uh, sheep producers might see, but aren't actually mastitis in in the sense that you've described it? Uh, uh, is can there be similar things that uh, present like mastitis? I guess. Right, right, and I I think the one we probably think of when we think of that is um, what we often call hard bag. So earlier we used that term blue bag when that blood supply is kind of cut off, but hard bag or what we'd call endurative mastitis is related to um, generally OPP um, in sheep. So lentivirus subfamily and generally the, the hardening of that bag is um, both udders at the same time. And so when earlier we talked about generally the clinical signs of mastitis show kind of in one side of the udder more than the other. Um, but with hard bag, uh, kind of one of the signs of that is that they both harden kind of simultaneously at the same time. And um, even though that looks a lot like mastitis and, and kind of is, right, it's uh, generally not our typical mastitis that we're um, familiar with. But those those ewes that do have um, OPP are are more susceptible oh, interesting. to getting mastitis. Okay. Yeah, great. Well, Doctor Page, we're going to start to wrap things up here. Uh, and and well, one question that I I really like to ask all of our guests is if you can leave our listeners with one take home message from our discussion discussion today, uh, what would it be? Um, man, that is. That's, that is a great question. I, I think as it relates to this topic, it's probably um, prevention is the best medicine, right? So let's be aware as producers of what kind of problems we could face in the future and then have a plan to try to eliminate those problems out of our operations or how to best handle them. And so I think listening to some of these podcasts that you guys put out is really helpful and to try to come up with a game plan prior to ever seeing these issues on our operation. Well, Dr. Page, this has been great. Thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time to come on the podcast, sharing some of your insight, discussing a little bit about your, your research, your PhD research and what you've got going on in the future. That that's really neat to hear. And, and again, I want to say thank you for, for describing that for us today. Okay. Thank you, Jake. I sure. appreciate it. And I want to thank uh, all of our listeners as well for joining us as you do every month. Uh, if you have enjoyed this episode of the research update, uh, we would definitely appreciate you sharing it on your social media to help us spread the word. Uh, but until next time in June, we'll be back. But until then, eat lamb, wear wool, and watch your use closely for any mammary problems. Not doing so would just be an utter failure. Have a good day.